Uh, I'll, I'll tell you, lately I've been reading and listening to uh, a lot of Dan Rodriguez. Dan Rodriguez is a professor uh, out of Pepperdine University. He's got a book called The Future of the Latino Church. Uh, and Dan is, is doing an incredible job of convincing me that he's answering questions that I don't even know I need to be asking, uh, which is a scary place to be learning. Uh, when you realize that someone is answering questions in convincing and important ways uh, that you realize are, are answers to questions that you're not asking yet, uh, that he's that far ahead. Uh, and it's really not just the vision he has isn't just a future for the Latino church. Uh, Dan has a vision uh, of a church in the United States that becomes radically inclusive and diverse and multi-ethnic and multiracial and multi-linguistic. Uh, uh, and it's really convicting. And it's no surprise uh, that when he starts preaching and when he starts getting into the text, uh, that Dan Rodriguez often goes to the book of Acts. He often goes to the book of Acts because the, the stuff that we've been reading is we've been reading through Luke and Acts the last couple of weeks. Uh, this last week's readings from Acts are some of the biggest, most incredible changes in the history of religion were taking place during that time. And unfortunately, we've become so comfortable with the stories that we fail to realize that what's happening in the middle section of Acts is historic, that it's, it's incredible change, that things are changing in ways that the world had never anticipated or expected. And when you start talking about change, there's really two types of change that can happen in, in an industry or a market or an organization uh, any kind of group like that. There's two kinds of change. Uh, the first kind of change is innovation. Uh, innovation is when someone says, boy, the way we've been doing it forever is good, but I think if we tweak it a little bit, come up with this new idea, it could be better. And then other people might see that and say, man, we ought to duplicate that or replicate that. That's innovation. Uh, innovation is, uh, if you were here Wednesday night, uh, Lee pulled out, he didn't have a pitch pipe with him, so he used his phone as a pitch pipe for us to sing a song. That's innovation. Going from projector to uh, PowerPoint, you know, remember the old overhead projector slides with the light bulb and, and your teacher would write on them and they'd go up there and there'd be shadows, um, shadow puppets. Wouldn't that be fun if I could do shadow puppets while I was preaching? <laughs> That's innovation, little changes. If you ask Blockbuster, about innovation, they would say, yeah, Redbox was, was a challenge. Uh, Redbox suddenly made it to where there was basically a blockbuster on every corner. Anyone could rent movies from anywhere, but they kind of said, you know, we can handle that innovation. The second kind of change that can come into a market is not innovation, it's disruption. Disruption changes things entirely. When disruption enters into an industry or a marketplace, it requires that every other player respond to the disruption change that is going on or become completely irrelevant. That's the choice. If you want to talk to Blockbuster about disruption, you're going to ask him, hey, Blockbuster, what do you think about Netflix? Okay, that's disruption. In the middle of the book of Acts, we read about some changes that are going on in these early Christian communities, and we're not reading about innovation. We're reading about radical, religion-changing, earth-changing, earth disruptive changes. 
but before we get to, uh, to the major changes that are taking place in the book of Acts, we need to understand what it's like immediately before we come on stage in the book of Acts. What is going on in the temple in Jerusalem? kind of the, the master setting for all of these stories, the Gospels and Acts, they, they begin and end in Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem is where the temple is, and the temple is where God lives. And you need to understand that the temple is not like a regular church uh, where everyone comes and is welcome. The temple is sorted and, and into status groups. And so this doesn't really work this way. I'm going to do in two dimensions what's really happening in the temple in three. But if you can imagine that over here is the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where uh, the Ark of the Covenant would have been and where only the priests that were selected by Lot could go into at designated times and in designated ways. And when they would go into this place, they would go behind a curtain where God's presence existed among his people. The most holy place in all of the temple. And only those who were chosen by God could go into that. And only those, uh, those were chosen only from the priesthood, which was chosen only from the tribe of Levite, which was chosen only from God's people, Israel. And then you get a little bit closer outside of the most holy place, and you now come to kind of the inner parts of the temple where other priests could go on a more regular basis to do the sacred rituals that needed to be done in that place. And then if you get a little bit farther away, you're now outside of the, the temple building, but you're really inside the temple area in the inner courts of the temple. And here there's a court that's very close to where the temple is and where God's presence is. And this is called the court of priests, and only priests could come into this place. They could get that close. Uh, but if you were a Jewish man, you could come into the inner part of the temple, into the court of men. And so all men who were Jewish could come into this place, and they weren't as close as the priests were to where God's presence was, but they were here. And then you would step outside of kind of the temple, the inner courts of the temple, into the more outer courts. And so now you have a court that is the court of women. Not all women, but the court of Jewish women. If you're a Jewish woman, you could come this far, and it wasn't as close as the Jewish men or the, the priests were to God's presence, but here's as close as you could get. And then there was a short wall about this high uh, that had gates around it. And on these gates, if you were on the outside looking at this gate, was a sign that said, you are currently in the court of Gentiles. If you go through this gate, then your imminent death is your fault, not ours. Choose accordingly. There's a death threat on the gate of the temple. If the Gentiles come through this gate, you're going to die and it's going to be your fault. We're not going to apologize for that. We warned you. The court of Gentiles. And the court of Gentiles wasn't just for Gentiles. Uh, this court was also as close as you could get to the presence of God as lepers or people with diseases, those who were lame or blind, uh, those who uh, were beggars would stay in the court of Gentiles. Don't get into the place where the more holy people go to be closer to God's presence. It's not for you. If you were a Greek or a Roman centurion, if you were a eunuch, you were not allowed into the proper parts of the temple. You stayed out here in the court of Gentiles being told that if you cross this gate, you cross this wall, you do so under punishment of death. 
And this is how the temple is sorted. So that when visitors would come to Jerusalem, they would come to see this great wonder, this temple that God had given to Solomon and had been destroyed by the Babylonians and that now has been rebuilt by the Israelites with the help of of Herod and others, and it's been made into this grand building. They're sorted when they go to worship. And you know exactly how close you are allowed to get to the presence of God, which is over here. And this is really important when we start reading the book of Acts. And here's why the book of Acts is so important when we think about this thing, is that the book of Acts tells about conversion after conversion after conversion. And you know who's getting converted over and over again in the book of Acts? Gentiles and eunuchs and beggars and lame people and women and Greek women. Timothy's dad can now go. And over and over and over, all these people that we're reading about in Acts and that we know so well have grown up their entire life knowing that this is as close as they can get to God's presence. And then suddenly, these Christian missionaries start saying, there's a new way. There's a new way. Well, what's the new way? The new way is this, is that Jesus Christ, God's Son, came down and lived among us. And that after he lived among us, he was crucified, and on the third day he was raised, and now he's ascended to be with God. Well, what does that mean? It means that anyone who's baptized into Jesus Christ as a believer in him can now receive God's Spirit in them. And suddenly these people are saying, no, God's presence is over there. And Peter and Paul and James and John say, no, it's not over there because of Christ. It's in here. The temple's you know, splitting apart of all these people groups is broken. That time has ended. And so when we read these ordinary conversion stories all through the book of Acts, they're not ordinary to the people that used to stand out here in the yard. They're not ordinary. This is the most surprising, disruptive good news they've ever heard, that God's presence is no longer separated from them, but it can now come live inside of them. If you read that and go, huh, another convert, you've missed it. We're not talking innovation. But the book of Acts does begin with with one innovative change. There's a significant innovation, uh, and really this was in last the previous week's reading. It's in Acts chapter 6, uh, and I think it helps us understand some of the challenges that exist for this Christian community to begin doing the things that need to be done. Because in Acts chapter 6, a problem comes up in the distribution of food. In the distribution of food, we have a problem that comes up because there's widows that are being taken care of by the church. That's not new. It's in the ancient world, it's expected that your people behave like a family. Whoever your us is, your us should take care of the other people in your us group. That's not news in the ancient world. The question is, these Jewish widows who are leaving Judaism and coming into Christianity, do the Jewish communities take care of them or do the Christian communities take care of them? And the answer is that the Christians need to be responsible for taking care of their widows. God demands it, and it must be done. But early on, there's a problem. Some of the Hellenistic Jews feel like they're getting left out. The Hebraic Jews are are getting more, and there's a problem with language and culture. And one group is getting left out, and the other group is getting fed just fine. There's some element of 
prejudice or oversight in this early Christian community. And it's possible that some in the church had the attitude, if they want to eat with us, then they can learn to speak and dress like us. That's not, a, that's not how the Christian community, that's not the Jesus way of doing things. But then there's also this possibility, and, and I love how Dan Rodriguez describes this. As he says, listen, there's just some challenges when you have diverse communities that are coming together. And, and keep in mind, we're not talking disruptive change right now. This is innovation. All of the widows who are being fed and not fed can go into the court of women on, the other, on this side, the God side of the dividing wall. They're all Jews here. We haven't even introduced Gentiles yet. We haven't even got to the whole eunuch situation yet. There's no Roman soldier saying, hey, can I become one of you yet? This is little growth, and they've got a problem. Dan Rodriguez reimagines the, the problems of this situation uh, as if they were occurring in a bilingual American church today. And I love how he describes this. He says, I, I can just see the widows coming up to the church leaders and saying, no tenemos comida. No tenemos comida. We don't have food. And the leaders say, listen, we announced last week where and when to get the food. We told you, it was in the announcements. And the widows say, el anuncio fue en el inglés. No hablamos inglés. The announcements were in English. We don't know English. The leaders say, well, what do you want us to do about it? And the widows say, necesitamos lideres. We need leaders que hablan español. We need some Greek-speaking leaders. We need some people that know us, that know where we are and know what we're doing and know how we talk. And so out of this comes the first great innovation of diverse Christian communities in the book of Acts. They add deacons who speak the language of all the people so that all the people can be taken care of in the way that they live, in the way that they speak, where they are. So these seven servant deacon leaders are appointed. And this is innovation. This isn't disruption. This is, this is elementary school stuff that they're dealing with right now. And you know that it's not disruption because you, the same people can go to the temple and it doesn't cause any problems to where they worship in the temple. You can go to the marketplace and it doesn't bother the Gentiles at all that you're doing what you're doing or saying what you're saying. It's little change, but it's a big deal. It's a big deal that they sort this out. And, and out of these two servant deacons, two of them we know the most because they get other stories that are in the book of Acts. Now, one of them is Stephen that we talked about a little bit last week, and the other one is Philip. Now, Philip, this servant deacon who speaks the language of more of the people, is a disruptor. Philip's a disruptor. So Philip doesn't just keep preaching to the Jews. Philip's the first one that we know the name of who leaves Jerusalem and goes and starts preaching to those people, to those people out there in, you're not going to believe this, Samaria. 
Philip goes to Samaria and he starts preaching the gospel and this thing happens that no one expects. They all start getting baptized and an entire village is convinced by Philip's preaching and they get baptized. And word gets back to the other apostles and they send Peter and John. They go, look, you guys got to go figure out what's going on down there because Samaritans are doing things Samaritans ought not be doing. And they go down and they see what's going on and they say, they're all being baptized. The men and the women, they're all being baptized. What are we going to do? And they lay hands on them and they pray over them and they receive the Spirit of God. And they all kind of go, well, this is, this is disruptive. Philip then is called by the Spirit of God to go out on the side of the road where an Ethiopian eunuch is passing by and he's reading the scroll of Isaiah and he's trying to figure out what it is. And Isaiah has these incredible passages that talk about how eunuchs will even be welcomed back into the kingdom of God someday. And you can't help but wonder if that's why this guy has this scroll. And Philip says, would you like me to tell you more about what you're reading? And the eunuch says, yes, help me understand this. How could this be? And he says, I'll tell you how this can be, but I got to tell you about a man named Jesus because Isaiah is talking about a man named Jesus. And he preaches to him from, from the scriptures in Isaiah and the Old Testament this message that even this eunuch might be able to be saved. And the eunuch says, what's to keep me from being baptized? And you know what that eunuch is actually expecting Philip to say is this. I'll tell you what's to keep you from being baptized. You belong on this side of the wall. We don't do things like that with people like you. Philip says, I don't know. There's water. Let's go. And the eunuch is baptized, and he goes back, and he, he becomes a missionary to, Ethiop to Ethiopia. Because Philip was a disruptor. He didn't leave things the same. He didn't believe that the walls needed to stand if God didn't require them to stand any longer. And so we continue to go through the book of Acts and see that things aren't staying the way they used to be. The big one that we know about is, is in Acts chapter 10, and I want to read a little bit of this one to you. It's Acts chapter 10. Uh, it's not on the screen today. If you've got your Bibles, open up. If not, there's some in the chairs in front of you. Uh, Acts chapter 10 and verse 9. It says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet was being let down to earth by its four corners. It contains all kind of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. 
Okay, so you need to know that when Peter sees this sheet being lowered from heaven, and it's got all the unclean animals that Jews don't eat, Gentiles do that gross, yucky stuff, but good Jews don't. And a voice comes to him and it says, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. And Peter says, surely not, Lord, I've never done that before. That's an acceptable rebuttal, I I would think. But I want you to know that he understands that the voice that is speaking to him and giving him this vision is God's voice. That God is giving him this vision and that God is requiring him to do this. And his first thing is, God, surely that's not, I I need to clarify that this isn't what you mean because I've never done this and I'm not planning to start now. And God says, don't call impure what God has made clean. And then it happens a second time. And the second time uh, that God tells you, I want you to do something new, and I'm telling you that I'm doing it on purpose with intentionality, that you need to listen. And Peter says, no, Lord. All right, Peter's starting to get stubborn towards God here. When this happens a third time, when there's a third time that God gives you a vision and you know that it's God's voice and you know that God wants you to do this and he's saying, I'm doing it, will you get on board? And Peter says, I don't think I can. You need to realize that what's going on here is not just Peter kind of going, it's not just reluctance. He is openly defying God in this vision. And as this story progresses, as as these men come down and say, Peter, you've got to come with us. Peter's reluctant. He says, but God's told me to go, so I'm going to go. He says, but what do you you even want? What do you want? And he doesn't understand that what he's being called to do is go and preach to the Gentiles. And so he gets there. He goes with them to Cornelius' house. And he says, Cornelius, I'm here because God came to me in a vision. And he said, I shouldn't be ignoring you guys, even though I think you're unclean. Um, but I shouldn't be doing that. Uh, So what did you want me for? Cornelius says, what did I want you for? I wanted you to come and preach the gospel to me and my family. We've all been here waiting for you to get here, waiting for you to come and tell us the good news about Jesus Christ, him crucified and resurrected. And so Peter starts preaching the gospel and he's giving it to him. And all of a sudden, in the middle of his sermon, right before he gets the invitation, the spirit of God comes into Cornelius and his family And all of those, it says those of the circumcision who are with Peter, which is his way of saying all the good Jews that were there went, whoa, what just happened? Peter, Peter, they just got the spirit. Peter, God's presence just jumped over us and went into these people. What's going on? Peter says, well, I don't know, but if they've got the spirit, they need to get baptized. Peter catches up to what God is doing. But look at how hard it is for God to drag Peter into doing this, for God to drag Peter into taking the Spirit into these people. Cornelius is baptized and his entire household with him. Peter goes back to Jerusalem, uh, and and the leaders, the other church leaders, uh, have a special committee meeting, and they call Peter in before the congressional hearing of Jewish Christian leaders. Peter, we've heard rumors. Oh, what have you guys heard? We heard a rumor that you ate with Gentiles. Oh, that's all you heard? And then the rest of this story is going to come as a bit of a surprise. If you're upset about me eating with them, um, I've got some news. Did you take communion last Sunday? Yeah. Then you ate with them too. 
Because there now you're baptized into Christ, brothers and sisters who now partake of the body of Christ with you on Sundays. They're part of your family. I'm not just eating with them. You are too. I've got to tell you the whole story. Don't get mad at me. God did it. So he rewinds, fast forwards, and they say this. They say, wow, God's grace is good if even Gentiles can be saved. They're still catching up. They're still catching up to the disruptive change that the Spirit of God is bringing into these disruptive, diverse Christian communities. And while they're catching up, Paul's running around preaching to everybody. Paul goes to every town he can. He's all over Asia Minor. He's going to the Greeks. He's going to the Romans. And he gets there. And Paul goes and he preaches first at the, at the synagogue to the Jews and to the, the Gentiles who are sympathetic to Judaism. And then he'll just go to anyone else who will listen and not stone him. That's his desired audience. If you will listen to me long enough to get to the end of my sermon without killing me, I've got something important to tell you. Well, we're going to kill you. Well, fine. I'll tell you anyways. That's Paul. Paul's preaching to everyone who will listen. And there's all of these Greeks and all of these Romans and all of these people from all over the world are getting saved and they're getting baptized and they're becoming Christians. And, and they've decided that this is God's way of doing things, but there's, a, there's challenges that just naturally come up with being a disruptively diverse Christian community. And they start running into them all over the place. There's these challenges that come up over and over again. And one of them is this, uh, that there are some people that start preaching everywhere Paul goes. Paul leaves the town and these guys rush in. Sometimes they don't even wait till he's gone. They just show up and start accusing Paul of all kinds of awful things. And, and Paul likes to call these, these fellows men of the circumcision. They're Jews who think that being Jewish is the most important thing in the world. And to be fair, they've thought that for a long time in Israel's history. And they come into these places and they say, listen, we get that the Spirit of God is coming into you and we can't argue with that. But if you Greeks are going to try and become Christians like us, you're going to have to start acting a little bit more Jewish. If you're going to worship in our churches, you're going to have to start acting a little bit more like we do. So we're going to try and teach you how to behave a little bit better. You can't come into my church and act like a Greek or a Roman. You can't come into my church with all of your Hellenistic ways. So I'm gonna, we're going to clean you up a little bit. You're going to need to get circumcised, quit working on Saturdays. You're going to need to stop eating the gross, awful things that you ate. And they would say, you mean the things in Peter's vision? And they're like, yeah, that's pretty much the list. You've got to stop being different from us. And the crisis comes up. Paul's upset. Paul's upset that they're preaching this because he doesn't think that it fits with the message of Jesus Christ or the movement of the Spirit of God. And so Paul takes uh, Titus and they go back to Jerusalem and they meet with the leaders there and they say, listen, we've got to have a meeting and we've got to figure out, are we going to be a people of assimilation or are we going to be people of accommodation? And church, we've got to ask this question today. Because what assimilation says is, yeah, God wants me to welcome all people into my church family, but when you get here, you better start acting like I do, because otherwise you're just going to make me uncomfortable, and I don't want to be uncomfortable at church. So you're as welcome as you could possibly be. Just stop being like you and start being like 
me. It's assimilation. So Paul says to Peter, James, and John, he says, guys, what are, what are, is, this, is this our way? Is this the way that we're going to do it? Gentiles, you can come in, but you've really got to convert to Judaism because they could have done that before Jesus. Uh, there's already Jewish converts out of Gentile places before Jesus. If that's what it is, what's the point of the cross? If I understand the cross correctly, it's that Jesus Christ is available to all people without them having to check the things that make them them at the door. And they pray about it and they say, the Spirit has decided this and we agree. That's the order of their decision making. The Spirit has decided it and we agree. And they write this letter uh, in Acts chapter 15. And what the letter essentially says is this, is that, listen, there's a few things that we need Gentiles to quit doing. Get rid of the sexual immorality. That's a problem. Uh, we've got to clean up a little bit of the food stuff because we're sharing a table and it's just messy. But, but in all the other stuff, you stay Greek and you stay Roman and you stay uh, whatever it is that you brought with you as a Christian, you keep it. You keep it. It's who you are. God made you that way. God loves you that way. Jesus died for you on the cross that way. And we're going to welcome you in that way. Amen. We are going to accommodate you. And, and what that means is that you may bring some stuff that makes me uncomfortable, but I'm going to choose in a Christ-like way to be willing to be uncomfortable so that you don't have to be. Accommodation. I'm going to accommodate you. I want you to feel incredibly welcome when you're here as you are, not expecting you to be as I am. Paul takes this letter, and, and this is in Acts. Paul takes this letter, and he goes and starts running to all the churches he's converted. And he says, you've got to read the letter. And he takes it to the Greeks, and he says, you've got to read the letter. Peter, James, and John, you know what they said? They said that they love you and welcome you. They said, bienvenidos a las iglesias, mi hermanos y hermanas. Welcome as you are. And it says that all of these churches, they grab the letter and they read it and they respond with incredible excitement and enthusiasm because now they know that they're welcome, that they don't have to assimilate into Judaism to become a Christian. And this is incredible news to everyone who hears it. And so we've got to ask, is there somebody out there who, if they walked into this auditorium next Sunday, would feel unwelcome? Is there anybody who, if they walk into this church building in a week, today, would feel unwelcome? And if they do, we're missing what Peter, James, and John, and Paul wrote in that letter, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all are welcome. All are invited. And we need to make sure that without compromising our beliefs and without compromising God's truth, I'm not saying we just become permissive. This isn't about tolerance. It's about hospitality and welcome that all people feel welcomed into this family and into this place with whatever they bring and all of their stuff, 
that when they come in, they know that Jesus Christ loves them and died for them, and we love them too. And if they're uncomfortable, we're going to try and be a little bit more uncomfortable ourselves so that they can receive the comfort we're not selfishly hoarding. Revelation 7. Revelation 7, there's this incredible scene. Revelation 7 is this picture of the throne room of God where Jesus is seated on the throne and all of the people. This is the end of time. And what John sees in this vision is, is what is coming. What John sees is what is ahead. And what he sees is people of every tribe, every nation, and every tongue singing praises to the Lamb. And here's what I want to ask you. How did, how did John know... How did John the Revelator know that they were people of every tribe, every nation, and every tongue? Because they didn't go away when they got to heaven. He knew that some of the people were of a different race than him because their skin was still a different color than his. He knew that some of the people were speaking a different language than he spoke because their language that they were speaking, he didn't understand it. It was a different language than he spoke. The things that make you you, your race, your ethnicity, your language, you keep those in God's presence. You don't have to get stripped away and all of us get flattened into like gray people that speak Greek or whatever language you want to pick. We would pick English because, you know, that's what our Bible's written in. Unless you're here and it's written in Spanish and you might think that it will all be in Spanish, but it's not. Because the people of every tribe and nation and language sing out in all of their languages one song and they praise Jesus and they praise God with all of the incredible disruptive diversity that the world is craving it's there and it's coming and church let me tell you if you don't do it now you will do it then so let's just get the party started why wait for what God is promising why wait and figure out how to worship God in one awesome, incredible, beautiful room when we can start doing it right now in this room? We need to become the disruptive force in our community that our community is desperate for and that we read about in Acts. And the way we do it is by, by welcoming those who we think are unwelcomable without compromising who we are, what we believe, giving them our comfort being a little bit more uncomfortable ourselves. Disruptive diversity, the family of God, the kingdom of God. Today, if you're sitting here and you have never joined that beautiful, colorful, multilingual family that is the body of Jesus Christ, do it this morning while we stand and sing.